0: Hi, I'm Sky. And I'm Dom, and together we're part of the Escape the City community. Back in 2010, escaping your corporate career was a pretty fringe idea. But today, thanks to the advances in technologies and shifts in attitude, it's becoming increasingly mainstream. Escape is a movement of people who believe that life is too short to do work that doesn't matter to you, and that doing something different is possible.
1: We're on a mission to help a million people to quit their corporate jobs and find work that matters to them and the world. And we wanted to share the incredible stories of those who have already made their career escapes with you.
0: Welcome to The Escape Artists.
2: Here I am. There he is. Hello,
1: Ben. Today's escape artist is Ben Keane, the co-founder of Rebel Book Club. From an island in Fiji via the beaches of West Africa to the English West Country, Ben has spent 20 years exploring how to make a positive impact through building startups, communities and adventures.
0: Ben Keen, great to have you on the podcast. I'm um, very excited about this conversation. We've worked very closely together for years, but there's a lot more to your story than escape. So I'm excited to kind of jump into it. Sky, have you got any any
2: words? <laughs> well, I think what I was going to say was I remember um, I was recalling when we first connected and I got this email from Dom and Rob This is 2010. It's actually 2009, September
0: 2009.
2: And and the email was essentially an invitation to a a launch event for this thing called Escape the City. Not Flee the City, it was definitely Escape by then, wasn't it? I was running an ecotourism business called Tribe Wanted then. And I remember getting this email going, oh, when I'm back in London, I've been invited to this thing in January and kicking (laughs) off the new year with a bunch of people who are trying to change careers and do something different. I was like, this sounds like my crowd. And I remember chatting to, I think it was Rob... About the plan for this event, and he was quite excited about it. And I was like, "Yeah, I'll come along and see, join in the conversation." And and, yeah, and I turned up, and this was um, in Soho, wasn't it? And and there was a queue down the street. It was about five in the afternoon, and I was like, "Oh, there's this club here, isn't there? This Brazilian nightclub called Gonabara." And I was like, "This is great because after I've done this talk on careers, maybe I can we can go and have a drink." And there's a band. I hadn't been in London for a while. I was like, cool, it's a night nice <laughs> out, And I got in and there was a, you and Dom and a bunch of, um, I, I guess they were volunteers, right? Running around in Escape City, freshly printed Escape City hoodies, <laughs> like like maniacs going, okay, are we ready? we got this, we've got the screen and we've got the music and we got this. And I was like, well, well why, why is everyone so hectic? And he's like, well, we've, we've got 600 people who bought tickets. I was like, 600? for your launch event and the queue outside were people queuing to come into this event that I was about that to was speak nuts. at and I'm, I'm sure you were a lot more scared than I was because I had no anticipation up until that moment but what was that like that was when we met right what was that event like for you <laughs> yeah it was it
0: was crazy because it was the first event so I had quit my job two weeks before that and yeah I was just kind of going hell for leather for it really and putting everything into it and it kind of kicked off with a uh, 650 people. Uh, the, the capacity was 650, and we sold 650 tickets.
2: It was a brilliant and night.
0: It was a brilliant it, it night. It was crazy. I, I had no anticipation. I was really scared because we obviously had to do some talking at it as well, and I had never really done any <laughs> public speaking or anything. So that was the thing I was most scared about. And that was kind of terrifying going up onto that stage. And But it was also very illuminating because I had a lot of work colleagues there, and it was like, this is my... If, it was kind of a quite a public sh- way of escaping and saying like, this is what my idea, this is what my it, it was your coming out party, Dom.
2: <laughs> it was. And there was a lot of angry bankers to witness it. That was the thing, like, that was the vibe I got. I was like, I went to the bar to get a drink and there were just like, a lot of suits at the bar. And thankfully mm-hmm. the escape community has diversified a lot since that moment, but there was a lot of suits <laughs> at the bar and they were like, oh yeah, I hate this, grumpy, grumpy, grumpy. And then like and I was like, wow, no pressure on the speakers tonight then. <laughs> but it was fun no i mean i've not seen i've not seen a startup like kick off with such in-person momentum as that apart from someone selling sneakers like exclusive sneakers and people queue for miles but in terms of like a mission-led startup uh, it was it was brilliant to be part of but the momentum around those meetups has you know kept going and it turned into different things right sky and Mm. but it was it was a fun thing to be part of at the start Going back to the beginning, you uni- let's, let's take it from university. When was the first
0: idea that you wanted, you had an idea about what your career wanted to be?
2: It was in a queue at a milk round, and you know this story because you were probably in that queue as well. Maybe that same university, maybe a few years apart.
0: <laughs> you were a year
2: above me. <laughs> yeah, and I remember being in that queue for a milk round. For those that don't know what a milk round is, it, it's one of those, uh, you know, corporate brands uh, going around some group of universities and trying to recruit or get people signed up for their graduate programs, to apply for their graduate programs. They put on beer and pizza nights and so on. And, and usually it's their graduates who've come back, who've gone those programs from that university and come back two years later and basically say, I'm making loads of money. And I remember b- listening to one speech and maybe it was a particularly bad speech. And th- this guy said, oh, I'm, you know, it's great. It's really interesting. Blah, blah, blah. Product development, training in this, et cetera. Uh, but the bottom line is I'm making loads of money. And I was and then I watched all these people like queue up and lap it up and say, Yeah, I'll apply for this graduate program. And I found that a really conflicting moment because half of me was like, right, the path's being laid out, a privileged path into employment is being laid out there. I have to focus and work for it. But it looks like there's a path there that's, you know, it's secure and can you you're conscious of that you've built it up at uni and this is what everyone does. And then the other half of me, or the bigger half of me, I guess the idealist it was sort of saying, what the hell is this about? I'm standing in a queue with people who are studying anthropology and Middle Eastern studies and business and politics and philosophy and smart, privileged, but interesting people. And they're all queuing up to sell basically high street products or do the numbers behind them. And I was like, this is weird. Um, so I went away and had my idealist sort of uh, moment, and um, then I went off travelling. And, and I, in, in the in the holidays or the time out from uni, and I started working as a, a volunteer with a community development travel startup in uh, Newcastle called Madventurer, which was set up by this one Geordie guy. And uh, yeah, I became his first employee. So I started working for him the next summer, and I was driving Land Rovers around West Africa to Timbuktu. And to be honest as i'm sure many people who are part of this community will know and have felt like that was my education that was the moment when i was like ah this is this is what the world looks like beyond the bubble of of a kind Mm -hmm. of english university town and this is what i want to be part of and learn about and yeah and then i spent the next six years kind of working in that community adventure tourism space and eventually starting my own business called tribe wanted which was this crazy project to crowdfund a remote island physical island somewhere in the world to develop a sustainable village on it so this was two thousand and five, six, and we went on that adventure and that kind of shaped everything else for me anyway how did
0: the idea come about
2: for tribe wanted well i don't know sky do you remember myspace
1: (laughs) yes i do i sure do i loved having the tune on your profile you got to pick your music (laughs) That was great, and that,
2: and that guy Tom, who was friends with everyone,
1: he was friends with everybody. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, so MySpace was the starting point. I know Dom knows this because he he was probably uh, not that you made any music, Dom, but you're definitely around <laughs> for that time. Uh, so the, the, at this moment, in terms of what was going on online, it was MySpace, MSN Messenger, Hotmail was the big email account. That was about it, I think. But MySpace was this first kind of social network, and Margaret Thatcher
0: space- was prime minister.
2: Uh, <laughs> Oh, I mean, it was a, little, a couple of years after that, <laughs> but but the point was is that MySpace was changing this conversation in, in the music industry around how people interacted online. And believe it or not, there was a time where people didn't socialize online. It was very much just pushing content at people and services at people. So MySpace was like gathering people around music and artists. And there was a band in the UK called the Arctic Monkeys who went to number one. A Sheffield band who went to number one around the world because they built this huge following on MySpace, and suddenly like they exploded and and so the game started to change in that industry and this guy got in touch with me on the msn messenger i was running my first kind of online attempt at a business which was called career break cafe which Ah, was yes uh the idea was simply to try and provide a bunch of resources and inspiration for people who were taking time out to travel from their careers who weren't 18 year olds and they were dealing with things like mortgages and negotiating with their bosses it was an it was an early escape the city idea yeah I guess. it's a great focused idea focused on travel but the business model was hard i i soon realized was was hard work It was selling banner adverts you remember those kind of skyscraper <laughs> and banner ads selling like travel insurance and adventure holidays and i started to get some momentum i was like oh my word i've got i've got a huge amount of traffic to justify selling these ads at this price to run a one-person business but it led to a conversation, and the conversation on MSM Messenger out of the blue was with this guy in Liverpool called Mark, who said, "Ah oh Ben, I've been following your travel blog and your ideas. Have you seen this thing called um, MySpace? Have you seen what's happening there?" And I was like, I, instead of ignoring it, I think it was spam. I responded, and um, essentially, his initial thought was like, "What if you could build a MySpace-type community around a travel destination? Could you create an interesting new uh, new project or media?" idea there and there was something about it that i was like this is intriguing because one of the challenges in community-based tourism at the time was that you you only could sell it once so someone would come along and pay to be part of this big adventure or community project over their summer holidays or another time of the year but essentially you sold it once repeat business was hard, and also engagement with the projects and what it was all about in terms of learning about the culture and what the appropriate way, responsible travel and sustainability and all those really important elements, it was hard to do in advance and then you'd have to anyway. So I thought here's something that could work. It could potentially solve a business model issue because people could you know, be part of it for longer yeah. through the social network. And two, it could help educate people in advance and stay connected to the project afterwards online in terms of visiting but ultimately the thing I was excited about was like could you get an online community and a real world community connected and which I know I know everything has a Instagram page now like lampposts and dogs and stuff but (laughs) in 2006 it was this band so so it was quite a big sort of anyway there was something in his idea and we started talking and I fell in love with the idea Uh, I know Sky you always have this analogy with uh, teaching escapees about Dating ideas and like getting your ideas out to the world. And it felt a bit like this. I was like, I fell heavily for this idea without really knowing <laughs> how we were going to make it happen. Um, but started searching for islands online and got immersed in that world, negotiated with this island broken Australia for an island in Fiji, which we didn't have any money for. But then because I'd had this experience, I guess, traveling and working, I was confident enough to go there and sit down and negotiate a lease for the island with this five-year-old Fijian island chief, Tui Mali. And then we had to raise £25,000 in six weeks to put a deposit on this lease. Actually, the thing that tipped me over the edge to like go for it was something really mundane, which my uh, young person's rail card was about to expire. I was 26. (laughs) I was like, I've got to get serious. I've either either got to go and get a job like the one I ignored in that queue at university or I've got to go and do something bold and different. And so that was it. And so we put this tribewanted.com out it was like a simple three-page website with a paypal button with membership options and blah blah, blah. and it was all kind of the business case model behind it It was a bit shaky but we, we thought the idea was exciting and i remember writing a sort of very simple press release like a tribe is wanted to build a sustainable community i mean it sounded so far fetched it sounded like a reality show but except this wasn't and then i put it out there through a friend who worked in pr and silence two days so you all got this all this pent-up anticipation and for anyone yeah. who's um Hmm. built up to like making a big career change or getting a business idea out into the world or like just making a big change in life and then it's like the d-day and then it's just like tumbleweed (laughs) and you're like oh all those doubts that you had suddenly are like front and center so (laughs) but anyway 48 hours later i woke up with a message from a mate and he's like hey, what's this, what's this island thing you're at doing? This is someone I hadn't heard from for ages. I said, why? How do you hear about that? He's like, it's on page three of the Metro. Boom, page three of the Metro. <laughs> yeah, page three of the Metro. That's the big slot. It was a big slot back in the, the noughties. So no professional journalist took, took any notice mm. of it. But an intern had sort of picked up this press release and thought, well, this is interesting, took it to her boss and they said, yeah, run with that. And it was like an advert for the project. And from there, that acted as our press release. And... All the serious media then picked it up yeah. and the next yeah, three months was was a bit mad and we ended up getting a lot of press for a tiny idea and project and it generated a whole load of um, response. So we got a lot of wild, wild west internet kind of people signing up to our project and then we had to make it happen for real.
1: So you had this idea that you wanted to lease an island in Fiji and build a sustainable community on this island From there, you got in touch with an estate agent, basically, about leasing an island. And then you flew all the way there to talk to this person about leasing an island. And you had no idea if it was going to work or not.
2: Yeah, essentially. I mean, I think the the decision to fly out there was... It was the nephew of the chief, the landowner of the island, who I was talking to online. And he was a lawyer in Australia. And it was really, his story was really interesting because the reason he left this tiny little island, Voro Voro, to study law and move to Australia was that a lot of the land issues that dated back to colonial times in that region of the world. like he was trying to help people basically protect and hold on to their lands. And so he was working with mm. Aboriginal communities in Australia around land rights and law. And so when I was talking about how do we protect, and do a more sustainable model of tourism where there's more ownership in the local community. It really resonated with him, and he's like, "You have to come meet my grandfather or my uncle." Sorry, Tui Marley. I was like, "Can you not jump online?" I mean, this is obviously <laughs> way before Zoom and Skype. But I was like, "Can we not? Can we not have a phone call?" And he said, uh, "No, he's, he's never been on the online." So, so that was the moment we knew. I knew we had have to right. sit down in person. But I guess the confidence to do that came from running these trips i've been doing for the last two years Mm. in western east africa and um, other parts of the world so i knew that the community tourism side of it i was clear about the online tech and business side of it i was like i have no idea um but Mm. let's get an agreement and so yeah that came from that and the risk on the finance to just fly out there and make it happen was more just it was just more the power of the idea right and and the adventure and it was you know the selfishness of wanting to go and have this adventure and and bring other people along
0: But the, the, I mean, the, the project was a phenomenal success in, in many ways. But also, you haven't mentioned this: is that mm. you got uh, the BBC to do a was it six part documentary?
2: Yeah, Paradise or Bust, they called it, Dom.
0: That's right. I remember what I was I like. We've got a it. great name.
2: We're talking of names, right? I said we've got a great name. It's Tribe Wanted. Like that's the best name. Just yeah. use that name. And they were like, No, no, we're calling it something else. <laughs> the documentary. I was like, Oh, here we go. What are you calling it? Uh, we're calling it Paradise or Bust, which actually, as a, as a documentary series, worked really well. Um, but but it, was, it was prime time. BBC one or two um, New Year slot on a Sunday, wasn't it, or something like that? You remember it better than me. Uh, it, was, it was The Apprentice. Do you remember The Apprentice? It was The Apprentice <laughs> slot on a Monday night. It was like nine o'clock in the middle of winter, January, February. It was, it was broadcast. The weird thing about that was that uh, there's so many great things happened when all the media stuff kicked off loads of production companies got in touch and essentially if you're in a production company you see this story in the news tribe wanted two young entrepreneurs like move to ireland and invite world to come yeah Gold dust. it's like it's like a ready-made tv show as far as they're concerned yeah. um except it's real and it's real risk as opposed to you know, like fabricated for for television so if they can get a broadcaster to agree to pay for it, then they're on to a winner. After going having a, a bunch of lunches with production companies, we ended up signing up with um, one called Shine TV, and they were great. And so they were with us for 18 months. It was quite full on. So I had, wow. I mean, they became great friends, like the team, the production team, That's and nice. they observed the project, and they, they told the story of the Fijian community really well. Of course, they told all the, about all the conflict and the problems we had within the project <laughs> as well. And essentially, the documentary became like, oh, what's Ben's problem this week? or you know run out of fuel for the boat or the water tank's leaking or like he's run out of money or (laughs) someone's stolen something in the village or you know there's a scam accusations on the internet there was always a problem right there was a fire there was a cyclone and the the funny thing is with that project is that when it's told on tv or like anything like that it's a, a year or two years condensed into five hours that's still a lot of tv time but it does make everything seem very dramatic mm. and that's without even dramatizing the content it's just pushing it all together so i remember when people watched it who didn't know about the project and they got in touch and they were like oh my god your life's crazy or this project's crazy <laughs> i was like well it was quite an intense year but it was also spread out the other thing that was crazy about the tv thing is that people watch tv and they see us building you know these traditional fijian houses and putting up the solar panels and so on and I'm like, oh, can I come and can I can I help you finish the, doing that? Can we get involved? I was like, this was two years ago. <laughs> yeah, they <too late. laughs> moved on to another project now. But it was a cool experience, and and it helped fund the project. It helped take the story much further. So yeah, I'm really proud of that series.
1: I admire a lot of things about you, Ben. I'll just flatter you on this podcast, but one of the things that I really admire about you is when you're quite humble about things, you're like, oh yeah, and then I did that and then I made this happen. But it takes an extraordinary amount of courage to do something like that. I mean, that's very brave. You're putting yourself out there, you're going, you're like, we're going to do this. You're pushing aside the self-doubt. You're kind of like, okay, I'm going to give it a go. And so many people stop themselves at that point of Mm. what if it doesn't work? I'm curious about where does that courage come from?
2: Well, it's kind of you to say, Scott, I wouldn't use those words myself. So it's brilliant <laughs> that you have those those labels, um, <laughs> courage and bravery, I think is because the alternative doesn't mm. attract me. So I'm pulled towards these exciting possibilities, creating something new, trying something different, having an adventure. But I'm equally pushed away from a world of work or things or status quo or that I'm not happy about or i'm not i don't really want to end up in and i can see and, and i think it's realizing that okay at the older you get especially what's happened in the context of the last 10 years of the world being aware of like your good fortune and privilege and how you can use that more purposefully but i think in my 20s it was pure idealism it was like oh let's give this a go and the lack of fear there's definitely self-doubt there of course there always is i still have mm. plenty of it in fact maybe more now than i did then but even though I know a lot more. The lack of fear just comes from the, it like it's overwhelmed by the opportunity. So it's not like the fear doesn't exist. It just gets pushed away by like, well, wouldn't it be great if we did this? And then of course you can always do your Dr. Pepper what's the worst that could happen question? And of course, <laughs> loads, of, loads of shit can go wrong. It always can, but then it can go wrong in your very sort of structured, secure life. Everything can mm. fall apart quite quickly. And, and it was selfish because I just wanted to sit under the stars with some people who'd lived on these islands for a long time who were open to this, doing something across a different culture and learn from them. And we did, mm. and that was the best thing about that project And amongst all the, the buzz of the publicity and the media and all the fun of that and building a community online and so on. When I look back on those five years that we lived there and I think, wow, did, we, did that happen? Mm. Did we get to do that? And then one of the best things that came out of that project was that we got to invite, it was only four, but four of our friends from the community there, the Fijian community to come over to the UK to participate in a bunch of projects and basically give them some return, a tiny bit of return hospitality. And then seeing a sort of home country through the eyes of people who live in that region of the world mm. out on the islands was fascinating they couldn't understand why St. Paul's Cathedral was a church and the gherkin wasn't. <laughs> like, Where is your, why is your spirit house so small? What's inside <laughs> that big gherkin thing? I was like, it's a bank. And they're like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, I learned a lot yeah. from from living with those people, both at home and then when they came here. Well, just tie, tie the story off with Tribe Wanted. In 30 seconds, what happened was we, we lived and worked on this beautiful island of Orovoro for five years. So many positive things came out of it, as I've already shared, especially the local impact and uh, the story that was told about the leadership of that Fijian community within the country of Fiji and being proud of culture and sustainability and, and all those good things and the impact it had on all the people that visited and followed the story. The business model was really hard. I mean, I'm still paying off the debt from it. Mm. Um, and we've wrapped that project up in 2011. So a decade on. Wow. I mean, it's slowly... Yeah being tied up, I've been slowly paying off that debt. So mm. I don't regret that. It feels like an educational debt, uh, like an MBA-type debt. <laughs> yeah. But school trips still go there from the US and stuff, so the project has carried on. Oh, that's good. After that, we ran two more sort of real uh, long-term tribe-wanted projects. We thought we'd go for a real challenge next, which was from Fiji to Sierra Leone, which I could tell you a whole <laughs> other story about. But I lived on the <laughs> beach in Sierra Leone in West Africa for a year, which which was amazing, and we built an ecotourism project there which still runs, not as Tribe Wanted, but it runs as a local community tourism project. And then we ran a project in somewhere very different after that, which was in Umbria in, in Italy.
1: It's so good. It's so nice.
2: And so mm. for people in the UK, I guess it's like a river cottage type model of residential where you can go and, you know, it's surrounded by olive groves and, yeah, it's it's living off the land. So, yeah, that was great to be part of that. But Tribe Wanted, as, as a business in the UK anyway, wrapped up in... You know a while ago now um and it was really for me it was trying to it's interesting because since then we've seen things like airbnb explode and change the whole hospitality industry and many other businesses and i think some of the ideas we were exploring which was around bringing people together online to connect with different places and the idea of belonging to somewhere where you you know a bit more authentic community-based tourism has taken off in different ways at least up until covid Digital nomads, mm. all those kind of trends, which we were part of in the early days, but where we had exceptional experiences and one off projects, we didn't quite figure out the business case or the business model that some of these other things have since. But no regrets.
0: So much of your identity was so sort of tied up with Tribe Wanted, and you were then co founder of Tribe Wanted guy on the tv leaving that or taking a step back from that was that was that really difficult
2: Uh, sitting here now no but at the time yeah i'm sure it was i felt a lot of guilt around because financially it was clear that it wasn't going to work long term unless someone just threw a lot of money at where they wouldn't from a business point of view they'd only do it because they really cared about it I think the guilt was really around letting our Fijian partners down, even though we'd invested heavily into the community and and their infrastructure, which they all owned. And so I was able to offset that guilt with some rationality, but it was still a strong emotion, like, oh, we can't carry this on. Um, Plus there were loads of challenges with the project. So the the mixed feelings of guilt um, of relief was huge. Because it was a big mm. chunk of responsibility. I mean, it was one project, but there was a lot of eyes on it. And there was a lot of, you know, we had 40 people working on it. We had yeah. people coming from all over the world. And so, yeah, there was a relief when I kind of took that step back. And then maybe there was a, if I'm being honest, there was, there was a moment when the Fiji project wrapped up to actually say, I could like draw a line under it and really walk away and like reflect on it and decide what's next but partly because I was like I think we can still make this work but (laughs) let's do it a slightly different way and there were opportunities out there it carried on and so that sort of period I think I was aged 30 to 35 where I was still leading a lot of tribe wanted stuff this is when I overlapped with meeting escape the city and so on where I was like actually is this really the long term thing that I want to be doing um as much as i loved it and and again it was like the the business case was hard um it Mm. was you know we'd work really hard we'd do everything we get this amazing publicity we'd have a great project on the ground if we were lucky we would break even i was like okay this is fine when i'm living on site you know my costs are super low but this is not a longer term career path and i couldn't after two or three projects i was like i don't see this turning around even though you'd meet so many, this is the thing about it, I think this is true with the escape community a lot as well, the number of people I met who were just so passionate about the you know, the kind of work that we were doing and also just the space in general, and it just attracted those kind of passionate, curious people, many who've become friends along the way. And, that was fantastic. But every time you're sort of like, I think I might just step out of this now. So I'm like, no, 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 don't do it. And of course, that's the thing. It's like, <laughs> it's not their job, right? Yeah. So it's a lot mm. easier. I think it's when people, it's like when people give you feedback on ideas or you give, I'm always conscious of this when someone's working on an idea, business idea or career change idea. I'm always like, it's very easy to say, yeah, you should definitely do that. And, and <laughs> when you're actually doing it yourself, it is a lot harder. Mm. Yeah. They, they're not taking any of the risk. They're just sharing their opinions. But yeah, it was, mm. it was great. And um, it, it also feels like now, and I've got the pictures up around me on the wall here from, from that time and the people and the, and the place. And it just sometimes feels like a dream, even though it was a big chunk of time. Yeah. It's like, did we live that life? And, and I'm lucky I'm one of those people that when I look back on things, I've got pretty rose-tinted glasses. Um, and so I go, I, I, like oh, I remember all the highlights. Mm. and uh and there was a lot of pain there as well but um the highlights in terms of the experience for us and others was 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 amazing
0: we haven't talked about good idea criteria which we kind of have to we have to weave into this story
2: because <laughs> this is your favorite question well wait, why don't you explain what is a good idea criteria well good, to remind me
0: good idea criteria i feel like you actually came up with this concept <laughs> no. the good idea criteria is what um, are the elements of success for you in in your career um, or in your life mm. to be happy, what are the main elements that you need in order to have a fulfilling career and life? And we could we named it uh, the good idea criteria. I don't know if we named it that or if we nicked it from someone else.
2: Um, <laughs> well, you nicked it from Plato and then and then Socrates and uh, then all the yeah. other great philosophers over life. You know what 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 makes a fulfilling life? And um, and I think you know what's great about that question is that. Often we go through our lives, um, you might ask it in the pub, but then you can't remember the next morning. We don't often ask it seriously around our working lives, which is why something like Escape City is so important. But actually when you sit down with a group of people, you do it in a structured way as well as a kind of philosophical and curious way, and, and then you build a bunch of outcomes out of it um, or, or what paths that you can go down. It's it's amazing. It's You never regret having that conversation. So it was interesting when I came into Escape, was, I, I Obviously, I thought about this question so I remember running workshops on the island, which are essential kind of escape school type workshops. It's like, where do you feel like you most belong in life? And these are a bunch of travelers, right? So some of them are a little lost yeah, or looking for something different, running away from something, running towards something. And so an island is a good place to have these conversations. And then when I came back to London and connected with you guys and got involved with escape, it was like the more structured version of that. Well, like what, what makes a good life? What makes a good career? What makes a a good idea if you're starting a business? And the criteria for me have not really shifted. It's that mix of what would happen, it's like what the possibility of, of going this way, plus can we do something, is this gonna have a benefit to the people involved with it? Like we don't wanna create suffering. I'm not saying people start ideas or projects or businesses with the goal of like creating suffering in the world. No one no one does, but it's more a case of we really thought through how this might play out. And and we tried wanted, we didn't, but ultimately it worked out in terms of positive impact. So can it work? Uh, can it make a positive impact? Is it sustainable? Is there a good business case behind it? And then the third thing is like, uh, are we thinking about this enough? Like, is this, are we excited about it? And um, I think too often we, sometimes people make the decisions where they go, I think this is the right thing to do rather than this is the thing I'm excited to do. And it doesn't necessarily have to be exciting in terms of like the idea itself. Like you can make your nut butters and you don't have to necessarily be passionate about nuts but um you need to be passionate about the idea of creating something that's going to shift like i really want to bring this thing into the world because i think it can change things i want to create the opportunity to build a culture a work culture that's slightly different or i want to try and shift policy in this space or whatever it is so it doesn't have to be the product or service that you're super passionate or excited about but it has to be like the journey that you go on you need to be excited about um stepping mm. out so yeah those those are the things so let me just
0: go through those again right impact is one <laughs> would yeah. you say with like impact you?
2: model which has to be that has to be sustainable right
0: yeah okay mm-hmm. so so you've got the impact that the business is having yeah then it has to be sustainable from like a financial perspective
2: yeah what was the other one it needs to be fun you need to you need fun. to be one to do it and I, that sounds have r- excitement yeah fun excitement. You but, need, that yeah. sounds obvious but I think sometimes that gets missed
1: One thing that I um, I wanted to touch on is you were thinking about, okay, what am I going to do next? You got involved with Escape. You helped literally thousands of people start ideas, you know, change their careers, just inspired so many people. And then you talk about, you know, as you get older and you have more responsibility, the temptation is to step away from being bold. But what I really love is that you, after all of these things, you took your three young children your whole family, and move to an island in Thailand as an adventure. That's the stuff most people dream about, you know. What was that process of like, right, I need an adventure. I've been in London doing all of this stuff, which is great, but we need another adventure.
2: Oh, thanks for reminding me, Scott. Yeah, I think it's... um... (laughs) it's that same question which is wouldn't it be wonderful if or w- what would happen if and dot 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 and then off you go but the reason that came about was because of a mundane situation which then i asked that question and the mundane situation was we were trying to sell our house brexit vote had just happened and everyone was angry and the housing market <laughs> crashed and we couldn't sell our house for a year or it just slowed down so i was like okay well let's just rent because we were ready to make a move for various reasons we'd have three little ones let's just go and rent somewhere and we wanted to get out into the countryside a bit more and to our own mini tribe wanted without the tourism business model we're just going to live <laughs> a bit closer to nature and bring up our kids there and i was like hold on if we're thinking of renting somewhere in in england or the uk i'm going to spend this money anywhere and then i start this project called or new business called rebel book club i was working on that alongside escape the city you know i was working mainly online why can't we do it else you know anywhere in the world none of the kids were in school full time yet and i remember like asking this question coming downstairs chatting to Sue's my wife and and she could just see the look in my eye, which was, oh no, he's, he's, that's it. <laughs> and I think it's that it was that feeling. It's just like, I had that like real excitement about the possibilities and it still happens. But and I was like, oh, w- w- what if we did do this? And then I looked at the, the business model for the family for it, which was like, what would it cost for us to do this? And I, you know, I'm like you, Dom, I quickly sketched out like a, a spreadsheet of numbers. And this is something I learned from you actually, which was like, just, can you validate this quite quickly? With the numbers, and it looked realistic. Then it was the criteria. It was like, okay, so what are our good idea criteria for our family adventure? And they, and they were, we want a different sort of climate culture to the UK for this six to 12 month trip. We want somewhere the kids could get involved with a small international community school so that we, they weren't full time with us, as we thought that would be too much, and that we could get fast Wi Fi so I could work. <laughs> so it's really interesting you start like scanning and i looked at all you know all the digital nomad sites and all that kind of stuff and this whole world of families who travel the world with their kids i mean you know, it's wild and then eventually it's just on google earth and we got it down to sri lanka various parts of southeast asia and then i was just spending my evenings on google earth scrolling literally across these islands i was like i need to find a school and like a co-working space and found this place Koh Lanta and, and this island in southern Thailand and, and there was a global village school and I was like an international school for people passing through this part of the world you know all right okay perfect this looks good and then literally around the corner there was this co-working space and then the beach was there I was like that's it we're going to Koh Lanta so yeah we moved there and it would be interesting to have Suze on the podcast at this moment because she because I'm like it was amazing <laughs> she was like it was really hard Um, But she was full time with the kids, you know, getting three kids under four years old into sort of 40 degree heat. And it was a night, you know, it's well set up. There's a lot of good infrastructure there. But the other thing that was a reason not to go, which I'm so glad we pushed back on, was, oh, the kids are too young to remember it. So you go through all this effort because it's a lot of logistical effort (laughs) to move a family like that across the world. Um, You go through all this effort and then, you know. 20 years later, you go, hey, do you remember when we lived in Thailand? And they're like, no, no, I don't remember that. Well, here are the pictures. Oh, yeah, kind of. No, I don't. But actually, as as I, I've learned so much in terms of the formation of, uh, as us as people happens in the first five years of our life, maybe not surprisingly, in terms of our yeah. cognitive development and emotional development and so on. And so actually, the more you can do with your children within a secure, loving, structured way – in terms of exposing them to experiences and and so on the better that is in some ways it doesn't mean you have to move to thailand it just means what you know it can, it's going to have a big impact on their lives um, even if they don't remember it
1: so ben so you went to thailand you left you know working and teaching at escape you were already running rebel book club which you had started a few years before and you were kind of doing both of them at the same time side hustling testing it out and you decided you were going to work on Rebel Book Club full time when you were in Thailand and give it a proper go. Can you tell us a bit more about Rebel Book Club and kind of like how it got started and then kind of what happened when you started to work on it full time?
2: It's great having you guys here because you're reminding me of my career path. I've forgotten most of this. <laughs> So then you did that. Oh, oh, yeah, I did. (laughs) (laughs) That Rebel Book Club happened when I was on another adventure. We were in Bali. This was when we just had our daughter, Isla. She was one. So I guess that was a warm-up test for the Thailand trip. So that was two years Mm. prior to that. And this was whilst, in fact, Dom, we hung out there. And and I remember you giving that Escape City talk. Monkeys, bamboo, great coffee. And then Dom giving the Escape City talk to all these digital nomads. (laughs) It was brilliant. Sitting on beanbags, you couldn't get more cliched. And uh, <laughs> so, we was in, I was in Bali running a, a little startup side program to pay for our trip. For that, and uh, yeah, we did this really fun idea session, which we've done lots of escape over the years. But I remember this one. We were sitting out in a bar, and we there was about fifteen of us, and we went around the table. Everyone knew they had to bring some crazy ideas or random ideas about businesses or ventures to the evening. We just shared them. So you have a round of drinks, share a bunch of ideas. Someone's just noting them down in the spreadsheet. that would probably be your job if you were there, Dom. And then then you have another round of drinks and something to eat, and then you do another round of ideas. And, of course, by the third round, people haven't come prepared with three or four ideas. So by the end of the night, you have 100 ideas on the spreadsheet with everyone's names, and people are making them up. And it's – anyway, my kind of dinner, basically (laughs) – and the next day I was going through a spreadsheet and going, which of these ideas am I going to steal and launch? No, I was just like sharing it with everyone. <laughs> and There was one written in there, um, this guy Ben, he was saying I'm trying to figure out how I can get better at re- finishing books. Like I've got loads of books and, on my Kindle and I'm not finishing them and I want to get more value out of them. And I was like, not a radical idea, but it's something about it sort of stuck with me. It's like, yeah, I have that problem too. And it would just be interesting to build a little learning project around that, even if it's just between say two of us so we had a chat and we decided to run a first version of this little book club in bali and we we read a book over a month we invited the group to it we designed a little cocktail around it and i was like that was fun and of course it's not necessarily a a new idea i mean book clubs have been around for hundreds if not thousands of years but i said to ben and, and maybe this is the the key moment i said to him well When we get back to London, should we do this again? And should we invite people to join us? And shall we focus on helping people like really make sure they try and read the book and organize a meetup where we talk about what we can do with our learning and cement that learning and have a cocktail and charge people for it so that we're accountable to them and they are to us? He was like, yeah, let's do it. And so we ran it. And our goal was, talk about like startup ambition. This was the opposite of Tribe Wanted. Our goal was to get 15 people to pay us £15 for one month and we would run what we called Rebel Book Club. And the rebel part was, could you finish the book you started? Could you rebel and finish your book? And um, two, could we actually turn some of the reading that we do into action in our lives? Because hmm. a lot of us are very good at reading um, or le- like being curious about stuff, but not turning it into action. And you can't do that without every book you read, but there's a lot more we can do. So that was the question we asked. And we got 24 people in that first month. We had a great meet up on the roof of the virgin office and <laughs> at paddington and we drunk some rum on the roof and they were like should we do this again and then the crowd they were like yes so that was in fact as of this month that was 80 months ago wow. may 2015 so we've run it every month since and it's been one of i think rebel book club which is now my main focus or equal main focus it's been one of those projects mm. and jobs that's just almost always been a pleasure mm. tribe wanted was really intense if you think of them as relationships tribe wanted was that sort of First love, really intense, full on, amazing, like fell, fell into it hugely, but like oof, it was a whirlwind and it was like, mm. you know, Rebel Book Club really felt like because it's built slowly, maybe because it's a book club, not an adventure travel business. But because it's always been about learning and connecting people around learning and having fun with learning, it's felt like really enjoyable we're trying all sorts of different things now and obviously it's been a it been through covid with it so it used to be very focused on physical meetups which are returning but covid we went like everyone went online and i was just grateful i wasn't running a travel business Mm. but yeah we've learned so much and that's the privilege of it is that you every month you're like what are we learning about now
0: yeah
2: modern monetary policy this month next month we're history of magic last month attachment theory and relationships so it's really like diverse (laughs) in terms of what we explore But yeah, it's great. It feels like the university education I always wanted.
0: I've always admired Rebel Book Club, just the simplicity of it, the simplicity of the idea.
2: Mm. Because it isn't deliberately trying to be ambitious or change the world. It accidentally does in some ways for people. So not everyone, but a lot of people who join will turn around and go, because of the book they read or because of someone they've met through it or because of an event that they were at, will say... Ah, that completely shifted my thinking on it. And of course, with reading, as we know from the escape school, you've got to read the right thing at the right time. When you're trying to change career and you read the right inspiring human story or you do the right Mm -hmm. good idea criteria exercise or workbook, it can really shift things.
1: And so obviously Rebel Book Club is ticking a lot of the boxes for you. you So you say... You know, it it deliberately is not it's not overly ambitious or trying to save the world, but it it does it is impacting people's lives. And um, but I know for you, obviously, impact is such an important part of of who you are and your life and the projects you've done with Tri Wanted and and the ideas that you got the most excited about working with through Virgin Startups and through Escape. So I, I can see how. Your second project came into the picture, which is obviously RAISE and focusing on a big problem in the world where there's an opportunity for a lot of impact and where we need a lot of impact. Can you tell us a bit about RAISE and how your commitment to improving the climate and impact has kind of brought you to working on that?
2: Mm. Like you said, Sky, it's kind of the project I've been looking for, for, I guess, a, a long time, ever since the start mm. Tribe Wanted, and even going back to it uh, before then i remember i uh became a member of the world wildlife fund and got my little panda sticker when i was like 12 years old and so i guess <laughs> that sort of interest in uh, nature and the environment and then the challenges have been growing around it in my lifetime basically has always been there but I, in some ways i've been surprised that i haven't had more of a focus on this work up until now i've done bits and pieces around it supported people who've Built businesses in this space. But Raze started, it's Raze with two A's, by the way, like Aussies say it, because working with some Aussies on it, it's called Raze. Um, and uh, no reason, no reason, it's just how it is. Uh, Raze.com wasn't available, so we've got Raze. Uh, but this is this an is escapee. So the quick backstory behind it is that there was this brilliant couple, Amy and Neil Carter-James, couple in love and career, work, life, all in. They started and ran this amazing beach lodge in northern Mozambique uh, called Galudu for 15 years and used to recruit through Escape the City. I remember they were some of the earliest kind of exciting job opportunities when Galudu was on it and the picture of their amazing lodge. Um, And they won all the awards and I connected with them through the Responsible and EcoTourism kind of network and community and every awards sort of uh, event uh, Amy would be up there collecting them because it was this, this brilliant sort of Honeymooners Lodge that was having this really big positive impact on up to 60,000 people in that region in terms of education and healthcare and clean water and so on. So I've always admired them. And anyway, they got back in touch a couple of years ago. No, not even that, just over a year ago and said, hey, Ben, we'll work on this new idea. Uh, sadly, the lodge was destroyed in a cyclone
1: mm. along with
2: a lot of the communities in northern Mozambique. Plus there's this awful... Um, uh, growth in terrorism in that region um, mainly mm-hmm. over oil wells um, and so essentially they witnessed this was a few years ago like the climate crisis in terms of the reality of it, the front line both in terms of the accelerating extreme weather but also the fight over fossil fuels and the instability and the poverty and all of that that sadly impacts that region so they were like what can we do about it? what part can we play next and so they started looking at building a fund in australia to come up with interesting new ideas for sustainable tourism and then covid happened and no one wanted to put any money into tourism because the world stopped traveling and so they pivoted towards focusing on what they call climate startups and by that they mean any startup business that's essentially trying to tackle one part of the climate and nature crisis so as you can imagine this impacts every aspect of life right so it's from our food systems to our healthcare, through our education models through to our Obviously, our built infrastructure, the future of all of that and transport and, of course, energy and carbon and so on. So it's really everything. It's not that niche at all. But the idea with RAISE is to be a funding space and community for people who want to invest in startups that are tackling this crisis and for those founders to get the funding and the backing they need, but with a slightly more founder friendly and investor friendly model than we think is currently out there. And this is more to take risk out of the equation or, or to minimize risk. So one of the reasons we're in a mess, obviously with the climate crisis is because we've been taking all these risks about burning fossil fuels continually over the last half century, especially when we've known the scientists and the political and business leaders of the world have known that it's damaging, you know, a very fragile ecosystem to the point where it's shifting it beyond repair. And yet we've not done anything about it. And sort of the investment models that we've seen come out of Silicon Valley and all these crazy businesses that we've followed over the last 10 years, because we're already interested in them. They're exciting, but they're not necessarily, they're kind of one hit wonders, right? They're unicorns. I mean, there's a reason Mm. these big businesses are called unicorns because they barely exist or they, you know, they're, they're mythical creatures. And so with RAISE, what we're trying to do is basically take some of the risk out of that initial investment deal that you make between founders and early stage investors. There's no equity given up upfront. You have this safe agreement, which means that you can have future equity if you invest now, or you can get a return on your investment in different ways. And so the founder has more control, which is really important when you're sort of mission-led business is being built. And then the investor has more flexibility in how they get a return and more chance of getting a return. Not necessarily a thousand X or a hundred X, but two to four X over the next few years. Mm. Um, mm. So a more sustainable investment model, basically. So that all these businesses, whether they're, you know, the ones we're starting to work with already are like, you know, a lot of beyond plastic type models. So it's taking plastic out of everyday uh, household goods, whether it's, you know, bathroom products or kitchen products, um, there's so mm. much great innovation out there, the solutions are really exciting. They just need to be scaled up and the stories need to be told around them so that more people can easily switch. <laughs> and then the, um, we've been working on the legal side of the structure of the fund, and it will be open in January. Really? Amazing.
1: Well, open as wow. in the, the,
2: the platform is going to be live. Yeah, the platform and first investments will be being made. And in terms of, amazing, uh, we're not calling it crowdfunding because wow. it's going to be starting with what's termed sophisticated investors, which is a really weird term, but mm. uh, it doesn't mean that they're really smartly dressed. It just means that they um, <laughs> they have a certain amount of wealth. Uh, so in Australia, yeah. I think it's $250,000 of it's a proven income or certain amount of assets in the uk it's one hundred and fifty thousand pounds so these are people who are basically starting to invest but not necessarily doing huge investments so 10 pounds at a time and so that's the level we can start at legally and so looking for impact investors or people want to offset their taxes and invest in climate in yeah. different ways moving money into something that's going to make an impact in the world and get your return and then for the founders we've got a lot lined up in australia but we're looking for a lot more in the uk oddbox they'd be a great example of the type of business we're looking for but earlier stage probably so if you're looking yeah. to raise between a hundred thousand and two million pounds so beyond your kind mm. of bootstrapped first version you've got a product that's you've validated you've got some momentum but you now need to scale up your team your investment in the product uh, other aspects of the business then we can help come and talk to kino nice. he's got the cash i, I haven't <laughs> but we're going to make it happen for you <laughs>
1: He's going to connect you with the cash.
2: Yeah, and we're going to do a launch event at Gonabara in January. (laughs) 600, no, we're going to do something. But no, I'm really excited about it. I was in Glasgow at the COP26. I was there for the first three days. I really thought, here's an opportunity just to go and at least witness and get a sense of what it's like on the ground, as well as following all these climate events on the news. And I had a really positive experience. Uh, It was really great to see how they're shifting, one of the interesting shifts in Sky. I know this is an area of interest for you. As a small business how you move from like having trying to have a cultural impact through changing consumer behavior and telling stories of a, an industry or you know like food waste for example this is the problem this is the part we can play this is how you can get involved this is our activism blah blah blah. So is that kind of cultural shift that these businesses can have and b corp have done that incredibly well just purely through mm. the amount of money that people are now spending in this space but the next challenge is how do you change policy Because as we all know, if we're really going to move at the speed we need to in tackling these existential crises, we need to change government policy quickly so that keep fossil fuels in the ground so that enough funding goes to the communities and regions of the world to mitigate against the climate crisis and adapt because it's already happening there. And so there's this thing called the Better Business Act, which has come out of the B Corp community, which is all about basically changing part of the Companies act. It's pretty geeky, but it's it's fascinating. Mm. It's like changing a line in the Companies act that all businesses are part of that says actually you're responsible for your externalities as well as your direct spending. So your externalities is like if you cut a forest down to build a furniture business, you're responsible for the carbon release from that forest and you can't just offset it. You're responsible for the communities you impact. And a lot of us are naive to think, well, surely you're responsible for that anyway. And it was like, no, but legally. So I think lawyers, by the way, if there are lawyers listening, <laughs> this is probably the most exciting decade in, in a long time to be in the game of law, because you can, whether it's like ecocide, which is companies being taken to court because of not being responsible for their impact on nature and the environment, or whether it's activist businesses that are trying to change things or things like the Better Business Act, this is a great time to be a lawyer if you want to change the world. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm now getting into that world of like finance and law and start with, through a startup, which are probably the two areas I least expected to be going in, but uh, that's what's happening. I like it. Time is moving and the reality of the climate crisis, especially, which is at the intersection of so many of the big problems in the world, like inequality and race and gender uh, injustices and so on, and all the big things that we're aware of and we learn about through our reading and just being curious and caring citizens and humans. often feel even in our privileged positions that we can't do much Mm -hmm. about it feels so futile right when you look at the scale of all these problems you have to be in the right frame of mind and connected and talk to the right people you know that i think we've always been lucky to do is is that often it's like this is a time to have in terms of your work outside of your consumer behavior and your kind of citizenship which is voting and whatever activism you can get involved with which is increasing in importance all the time it's like how we spend mm. our time with our work and what we do with our money if we have it are, are the, the real areas mm. of impact. So that's why I think you know, the Escape the City project and similar sort of communities and businesses that try and help people really think about the work they're doing matter more than ever because we're in this age of crisis.
0: been such an inspirational character his approach to work and life really is a breath of fresh air he's a bundle of energy and ideas and it was so much fun working together i'm super excited to follow how him and his co-founders get on with raise and of course rebel book club and finally sky any opportunities for you that stand out in the top 10 this week
1: well this week we have an amazing opportunity to become the new ceo at upreach which is a social mobility charity focused on helping disadvantaged young people to make it into incredible careers. So if you're interested in that, definitely check it out. And remember that you can find this opportunity and lots more on the website, which is escapethecity.org.
0: Thanks for listening and see you next week.
1: See you soon. Next week on the podcast... I put a value on feeling really proud about the organisation I work for. Yes, you're not going to earn as much as you did in the private sector. There's other ways of judging your self worth. Mira Moynihan, who's had an amazing impact career from consulting in corporates to running for a local MP to education and tech startups.